Stand with me and turn to Romans chapter 15. As Pastor Bruce said, we've been in Romans 14 and 15 the last few weeks. Today we're going to be reading Romans 15. We're going to be reading verses 5 through 13 as Pastor Bruce concludes this series, Code of Conduct, The Beauty of Unity. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a pew Bible right in front of you. You can find it on page 1,128. Once again, follow along as I read from the book of Romans Chapter 15, verses 5 through 13. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may be with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for our hope. We thank you that our hope is in your Son, Christ Jesus. We ask that uh, you would help us to be uh, just just unified as a a body of believers uh, in, in, in our treatment of each other and our love for each other. And just help us to uh, just to, to apply your your message, especially in, in this time of year, and in, in just uh, living for you and honoring you with our lives. We'll be with Pastor Bruce as he brings the message this morning. Thank you for his preparation, and just open our hearts and minds to learn uh, from you. And uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I trust you had a wonderful Thanksgiving day with family and friends, or whoever you spent the day with. In fact, beyond that, I I hope and trust that you survived uh, Thanksgiving, especially if you spent the day with family or friends. And I intentionally say survive based on all the Thanksgiving uh, code of conducts that are out there in the blogosphere uh, for getting along with family and friends during the holidays. For example, Madeline Farber writes, Thanksgiving is a time for good company, delicious food, and reconnecting with family. But the fun and food-filled holiday can quickly turn contentious should politics arise. For some families, it may be best to avoid the subject altogether, says one psychology professor. Tristan Justice writes this, Certain conversations are off-limits during the holidays, and politics has become one of them. Given our current political climate, it's not hard to see why. Politics can be divisive. People are dismissive. Disagreement is uncomfortable, especially when emotions run high in the heat of the moment. It's been interesting over the last few years that uh, each year, in fact, there seems to be more and more of them each year, that there are these countless headlines offering advice on how to get along with family and friends during the holidays. And we've just come out of one holiday, Thanksgiving, as you know. And by far and away, the number one code of conduct at Thanksgiving is don't talk politics with your family and friends. 
For example, an NBC News headline reads, How to Avoid All-Out Political War at Your Thanksgiving Table. The Washington Post headline says, Have different politics from your family? Here's how to survive Thanksgiving. The USA Today offers, in this headline, nine ways to avoid political food fights. And then here's what Jack Roskip writes. It's hard to agree on everything these days, which will surely make sitting around the Thanksgiving table with your extended relatives who have different opinions than you rather difficult. It's natural to want to talk about politics. If you want to have World War III showdown at the Thanksgiving table this year, then by all means, do so. There's nothing wrong with a healthy debate, but if you're trying to keep it kumbaya this year, here are some helpful topics for you and your family to discuss that won't cause a major meltdown. And then he goes on and he gives several examples of these topics in which you can talk to at the Thanksgiving table with your family and friends, such as the new Disney Plus. Talk about that. Or Baby Yoda. Or talk about the Popeyes versus Chick-fil-A controversy. Or tells us new Cybertruck, or the royal family, or the new movie sequel, Frozen 2, and then he gives on these other lists as well. Now, what's the purpose of all this? What's the takeaway from all this? The takeaway is simply this. Most people, most people really do. They want peace at the dinner table, and they will do anything for it. And as we conclude our series here in Romans 14 and 15, I want us to look at the beauty of peace, or what we are calling here, the beauty of unity in God's family, the church. Now, at the outset, we need to understand an important truth about unity. And this is coming up on the screen in your notes. If you want to follow along, you can pull that insert out. But unity is not something that we can create, that we can manufacture, Unity is not something we can create or manufacture, but unity is something that we can keep or maintain or or preserve. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.3, he says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So only the Spirit can create unity. But we, as Christ followers, we have a responsibility in this. And that is to keep it, to maintain it, to protect it, to preserve it. As we've seen, contention in the church is nothing new. And a lot of it is caused when Christians disagree over what Paul calls these disputable matters or these non-essentials. At the church at Rome, the disagreement was over these special diets and special days. Some believers were, were Uh, still somewhat immature in their faith. Paul calls them weak in their faith, and they didn't fully understand the freedom that they had in Jesus Christ. And so they continued to keep the the kosher diets and observe the Jewish holidays in, in order to please God. While other believers in the church were stronger in the faith, more mature, if you will, and they understood a little bit better that Christians no longer had to follow the dietary laws and observe these special holidays, and so they enjoyed their freedom in Christ a little bit more. But Paul's overriding concern, and this is the important part that we need to understand here, Paul's overriding concern in this whole issue that we've seen in Romans 14 through 15 here is not who's right and who's wrong between these two groups. 
Rather, Paul's concern is all about keeping unity in the gospel. In Romans 14 and 15, Paul teaches us how to stay united in the gospel and and actually even to give freedom to one another in non-essentials. This is why Paul tells us in Romans 12, uh, verse 16, he says, live in harmony with one another. And it's not just live in harmony with people who agree with you, but to live in harmony with believers who actually practice these disputable issues, these, these non-essential issues differently than you. In other words, Paul's exhortation to us is this. Don't make a big deal out of these disputable issues that would disrupt or divide unity in the gospel. Instead, Paul is saying, let this be our pursuit And it's really what he prays here in our text in Romans 15, verses 5 through 7, where Paul exhorts us and he prays to God, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. That's Paul's wish for every church. And it's his wish and it's his prayer for our church here at LifeBridge. This is the beauty of unity. Now, What I want us to do is I actually want us to unpack what the beauty of unity is a little bit. And i got four simple points here that I want us to go through. And then we'll wrap it up by participating in communion. Notice number one, true Christian unity comes from God. It comes from God. Now some people think unity is just when everybody looks alike, thinks alike, talks alike, dresses alike, and even smells alike. But that's nothing more than a a cookie-cutter form of Christianity. God calls us to unity, but not uniformity, or even conformity to one another. God loves diversity. And if you don't believe God loves diversity, just look around you. He loves variety. Take a look at your neighbor. They're different from you. We may come from diverse backgrounds, but in Christ, there is unity in diversity. That's what makes unity so miraculous. When different people or when people with different cultures, different preferences are able to come together in unity. That's what I love about our church. And so you're hearing whether you cheer for the Missouri Tigers, whether you cheer for K-State Wildcats or even the KU Jayhawks like I do, it doesn't matter. Listen, we can all get along because we are what? We're one in Jesus Christ. Paul lays this out in Galatians 3.28. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Psalms 133.1 describes it this way. He says, How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. So unity is not uniformity, but unity is a precious gift from God. Remember, this is a prayer wish. This is Paul's wish for us here at LifeBridge. Paul is praying in verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live, what? In such harmony with one another. Why? Because unity isn't something that we just work up on our own like cheerleaders at a football game. No, true unity comes from God. At the same time, To say that true unity comes from God is not to say that we have absolutely no responsibility in the matter. We've already seen this in the last three weeks. 
And as we have seen, we need, Paul exhorts us to do what? To walk in love, to live in such harmony with one another. And as you know from home or or even your work environment, harmonious relationships do not just happen automatically. Paul says in Romans 14, 9, that we are responsible to pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. He says in verse 13 of the same chapter that we must be careful not to put stumbling blocks in a brother or sister's way. In other words, Paul's saying this idea of walking in love towards one another. It's the idea of being gracious, being sensitive toward one another, especially to those who are weaker in the faith. And what kind of God grants this unity to us? It's the God, Paul says, of endurance and encouragement. And let me tell you, that is wonderful news. Because we desperately need encouragement and endurance to live in such harmony with one another. In fact, endurance implies that there will be times when living in such harmony will take lots of patience and lots of forbearance with one another. So instead of getting angry when you disagree with somebody, Paul says what? Bear with them. Bear with them in grace. And instead of judging another person's convictions in a disputable manner, you welcome them. Why? Paul lays it out. Because God has already welcomed them and you in Christ. No wonder Paul says in Ephesians 4, 3, make every effort... Make every effort to do this, to keep, to maintain, preserve the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So the first thing we see is that true Christian unity, it's a gift from God, but we have a responsibility to keep it, to maintain it. Number two, true Christian unity is based on Jesus. It's based on Jesus. Paul prays in verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. And then notice the last phrase. In accord with Jesus Christ. That phrase that Paul uses there, in accord with Jesus Christ, gives us the basis or or the foundation for unity that we dare not forget or ignore. C.H. Spurgeon put it like this. We shall live in such harmony with one another when we live in such harmony with Christ, but not till then. But what does Paul mean when he prays that God would grant us to live in such harmony? Well, Paul was not insisting. Again, he's not insisting that we all think alike or look alike or whatever, on every issue, or even agree on every issue, which we know, Paul knows, would never happen. That doesn't even happen between in marriage, or in a work environment, or home. Paul recognized that differences would exist between the strong and the weak. He has not urged these two groups to come to an agreement on every issue, but rather to what? Walk in love towards one another. To be considerate of one another. That means true unity is not a matter of simply just agreeing on every minor point of disputable matters or practice. Instead, Paul is calling us to a unity that is based on our common salvation in Jesus Christ. 
our shared purpose in the gospel, and our shared hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's actually a a Swahili word that epitomizes this concept that Paul's talking about. It's the word harambe. Harambe. And it means let's all pull together. So picture a group of people. They're all pulling on a rope at the same time in the same direction. And there are lots of pullers in every local church. But too often, the pullers are pulling in 13 different directions at once. And that's why the end of verse 5 is so critical when Paul says, pull in accord with who? With Jesus Christ. And as we follow Jesus, the church pulls in unison. The church moves in perfect harmony. And when Jesus is at the center of the church, the congregation, and not our personal agendas, not our personal preferences, listen, we'll all be pulling together in the same direction as we follow him. And the result is there will be unity among the people of God. This is what Jesus prayed for as well. When he was, before he he ascended, in John 17, or before the crucifixion, I should say, in John 17, 22, Jesus prays these words, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one, as, as we and the Father are one. And so true Christianity, first of all, it, it comes from God. It is a precious gift of God that we have a responsibility to keep. But it is also based on the very work of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Christ in the gospel. Number three, we also find that true Christian unity results in glory to God. It results in glory to God. Notice the second half of Paul's prayer here in verse 6. He says that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This phrase, one voice, can also be translated. In fact, some of your Bibles may have it translated this way as one heart, indicating that true unity begins on a heart level. In other words, our unity should not be some outward show while our hearts are at odds with one another. Remember, God looks where? At the heart. As Paul put it in Romans 12, 9, he says, let your love be genuine. Some versions say, let your love be without hypocrisy. Do you know when division begins in the church? It begins when we put our own desires ahead of God's desires. Just consider some of these examples in God's word. You go back to the Old Testament and there you find uh, Lot, who was Abraham's nephew, in Lot's selfish craving for the best land and the most wealth separated him from his uncle Abraham. Achan's selfish desire for wealth brought defeat to the people of God when he took the spoils of battle and hid them when God explicitly forbade the people from doing that. Ananias and Sapphira's selfish desires in Acts to be honored as spiritual people cost them their lives when they kept back what belonged to God and then they lied about it. Even the disciples had arguments over which of them was the greatest and Jesus had to rebuke them for it. 
Warren Wiersbe said it best. He says, the heart of every problem is the problem in the heart. And until we honestly start dealing with our heart attitudes, the problem will never be solved. So true unity, listen, it begins in the heart. It always begins at a heart level. It's a work of God within us, but it expresses itself outwardly in God-glorifying worship. You see, unity is never the ultimate goal. Verse 6 reveals that Paul prays for unity. Why? Notice there. Notice it in your Bibles. So that together you may with one voice do what? Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, for Paul, the main reason that we should live in what he calls such harmony with one another is not so that we will be happy and just all get along, although that is good. The main reason for Paul here for such harmony is that it simply results in glory to God. It glorifies our Heavenly Father. And this phrase, one voice, tells us that true unity expresses itself in God-glorifying worship or praise in fact just picture a a vast multitude of believers from all over the earth and they're lifting their voices together in praise there are people from every nation on the earth there are men and women they young and old rich and poor they are they come from every ethnic group on earth and although they may speak different languages they glorify god paul says with one voice And in the verses that follow this prayer for unity, Paul describes this great choir of both Jews and Gentiles praising the Lord with one voice. First, the believing Jews praise God among the Gentiles. And then the Gentiles praise the Lord with the Jews. And you say, how is this possible? Because let me tell you, if you know anything about the Jews and the Gentiles, there's nothing in common with them except jesus christ and yet they're praising god the father with one voice and how's that possible it's only possible based on the work of god it's possible because the wall has been broken down and the temple veil has been torn in two by the power of jesus christ and now in christ there's no more division we are all one body following one lord and singing with one voice to the glory of God. Here's something to think about. If we are to glorify God with one voice, we must do it together. It's not as if you can glorify God your way and I can glorify God my way. And forget about everyone else. The Bible knows nothing of that sort of hyper-individualistic spirituality. We need each other here if we are going to truly glorify God with one voice. Picture an orchestra. An orchestra warming up before a concert. You got there early and you hear the sounds. The violins play one thing. The trumpets work on their scales. The trombones practice something else. The clarinets are doing their own thing and the flutes are doing their thing. And that's the way it is when you warm up. There's no melody. There's just what seems like noise. 
But everything changes when the conductor lifts his baton. And suddenly the noise stops. Every eye is on him. And when he brings the baton down, the music starts. And you hear what? Beautiful music come together. If each person played whatever he wanted or she wanted, the result would be chaos. But when those different instruments blend together on the same song, following the same conductor, the result is wonderful. It's the beauty of unity. And in the same way, we here as a church, we are called to blend our hearts and our voices to the purpose of our conductor the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we follow His lead, our church will produce a symphony of praise that the world cannot ignore. So true Christianity, first of all, it comes from God the Father. It's a precious gift from Him. It is based on the person and work of Jesus Christ and results in glory to God. But notice number four, true Christian unity welcomes one another. It welcomes one another. This is Paul's concluding summary of everything he's been saying thus far. In fact, we mentioned in the very first message here that this code of conduct that Paul's been laying out before us really begins in Romans chapter 12. And he's been laying, laying this all out and he's been building to this one verse here in Romans 15 verse 7. Where he says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, I personally, I just love how clear and concise this command is. There's no ambiguity about it. It's crystal clear. And yet, the very fact of this command that Paul has to tell us this, implies that welcoming one another is not the first thing that tends to happen in a church family. Paul's command to welcome comes not because everyone in the church is always easy to welcome. In fact, the command is necessary because Paul recognizes that there is a problem in the church at Rome. Just as he knows there tends to be problems of this in every church. We have two different people groups in the church at Rome who are bumping into each other. Conflict is being caused by the friction between the Jews and the Gentiles who have opposing views on these special days and special diets. But Paul quickly shows that this welcoming of one another, this accepting of one another, is a supernatural task that is rooted in the gospel itself. When he says, welcome one another, how? As Christ has welcomed you. Now, as soon as we ask, how has Christ welcomed you? We are driven back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, we are driven to the very heart of the gospel. 
We are reminded here that even if we think we are the stronger brothers or sisters on matters of conscience in these disputable areas, that when it comes to matters of salvation, listen, we are all the weaker brother or sister that has been welcomed by Christ himself. The more we understand how Christ has welcomed us in his grace, the more we will be motivated to extend that grace to others who think differently than us by accepting them and welcoming them into our lives in church. And look what Paul says this unity results in. He says, glory to God. And so now we're back to God's glory again. Why? Because that's always the ultimate goal of unity. When we are rejecting of each other and lacking in unity, our actions reflect badly on our Heavenly Father. On the other hand, when we are unified, the God whom we represent receives all the glory. But there's more. This is so interesting because in verses 8 through 12 here, Paul illustrates how Christ actually welcomes us to the very glory of God. He explains in verses 8 through 9. Look what it says. Paul writes, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. And and when you see the word circumcised, he's referring to the Jewish people. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the Jews to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And so still talking primary to the Gentile believers, Paul reminds them that Jesus came as a Jewish Messiah for two specific reasons. The first reason of which is Christ became a servant to the Jews to fulfill the promises that God made to the patriarchs. In fact, in our... uh, uh, in, the, in the New Life class, you're looking at some of those promises in the series, Behold My Servant, in the pro- prophetic book of Isaiah. In our new worship series, Christmas series here in the worship service, we're going to be looking in, the, in Isaiah as well. Not the same chapters, but different chapters. And what you find is all these promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And Paul is telling us, listen... Christ became a servant to the Jews to fulfill those promises of God that he made long ago to the patriarchs. But there's a second reason, and that is Christ became a servant to the Gentiles so that they, and by the way, Gentiles, as far as I know, that's all of us here. Unless you are Jewish, you are Gentile. And so God, Christ became a servant to us so that we might glorify God for what reason? For his mercy. You see, we who are Gentiles, we should stand in awe of God's mercy for saving us. We should just just be in total awe of what God has done through Jesus Christ for us. Paul reminds us, you've been welcomed into the very promises that were not for you. Christ came to the Jews, and yet you've been welcomed by his mercy too. But even this was to show God's truthfulness. Since from the beginning of this, God's plan was to do what? 
God's plan from the very beginning was to redeem people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. God's plan from the beginning was always to bring all peoples, that is Jews and Gentiles, together in his kingdom. The beauty of unity. And to drive home this point, Paul does something so cool in verses 9 through 12 here. He quotes from four different Old Testament passages to actually show us, to prove to us that the inclusion of the Gentiles with Jews has always been part of God's plan of redemption and salvation as an act of his mercy to humanity. Notice the progression here. Notice, look in your Bibles in these four Old Testament passages. You see the first quotation, and it's, it's from 2 Samuel twenty two fifty, and it simply says that Christ will be praised among the Gentiles. The second quotation is from Deuteronomy thirty two forty three, and it says that the Gentiles and Jews now will praise God together. The third quotation is from Psalm 117.1, and it calls on all the Gentiles to praise the Lord. And the fourth quotation is from Isaiah 11.10, and it looks forward to that day when Christ will return and reign over all peoples of the earth. So don't miss the key point here. Here's the point Paul's making. God always planned from the very beginning to welcome Gentiles into his kingdom. He wants his eternal family. In other words, to include all peoples. As God calls the Jews and the Gentiles to now rejoice together with one voice. You say, well, what does all this mean for me today? That's Paul. He's talking. He's referencing Old Testament passages. Yeah, 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 yeah. What's this mean for me today? What's this mean for my life? Well, first of all, it means the gospel is the center of our unity. The gospel is the center of Christian unity. We are united because of the common bond we share in Jesus Christ. It also means the gospel then demands Christian unity. In other words, it's what Paul's been saying in these two chapters here, that welcoming one another is not an option for the church of God. It is actually the proof that we are keeping unity in the gospel. And so if you want to know whether a church like LifeBridge or any other church is keeping unity in the gospel, all you got to do is look at how welcoming that church is. How accepting they are. That's the proof of it all. And then the third thing it means is Paul lays it out and he says, listen, Jesus shows us the way. Jesus shows us how to welcome one another. This is Paul's whole argument here, that you were outsiders and yet you were welcomed in the most extravagant way possible in Jesus Christ. So what possible reason could you give now, having experienced Christ welcoming you for not welcoming or accepting your brother and sister in Christ? Jesus gives us the pattern for this. And Paul now tells us, you have the pattern, now follow it. And that means, in a very practical way, as we gather as a church family, and also as we scatter as a church family, we should bend over backwards to simply welcome one another as Christ 
has welcomed you all to the glory of God. Remember, unity. The world around craves it. And yet it is out of their grasp. Unity is not something that we can manufacture. It's not something that we can create on our own. It is a gift from God based on the work of Jesus Christ that results in glory to God. But unity is something that we can keep, that we can maintain, we can preserve. How? As we welcome and as we accept one another. Here's the code of conduct in review. Notice this in your notes. Keeping unity in the gospel includes liberty in Christ. Yes, indeed it does. We are thankful for the liberty we have in Christ. I mean, we have been set free. Keeping unity in the gospel displays the very love of Christ. Paul says, walk in love towards one another. And it then follows the very example of Christ. And so no wonder Paul closes this passage out with another prayer in verse 13, where he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Listen, this past Thanksgiving, this last Thursday, I guarantee you millions of people in our country sat around the table hoping, hoping for a little peace among family and friends. And perhaps some of them achieved some level of unity or peace at the table as they ate their turkey and dressing. And I'm sure others, perhaps many more others, experienced the fallout of disagreement and division. Listen, true unity, what the world craves, what we all crave, true unity is impossible to create on a human level. Only the power of the Holy Spirit is capable of bringing it about. And then we are responsible to make every effort to keep it. How? By welcoming and accepting one another, just as Christ has welcomed and accepted you in the gospel. Now, as we close out this series, I can't help but think of a better way to end than by participating in communion as a church family. You know, the Lord's Supper is such a great reminder that the focus of our unity is on who? Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, we can experience now the the forgiveness of our sins. We can receive the gift of life through faith in Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus' resurrection, we actually now, we have the power to follow the example of Christ in welcoming one another. The Lord's Supper is also a great opportunity for us to evaluate the, the spirit of unity in our own hearts. You know, the church at Rome, as I've already said, was not the only church that had trouble getting along. Do you realize there was another church that Paul alludes to in the New Testament that had a whole lot of trouble getting along? And that was the church at Corinth. And so Paul actually writes two letters 
to the church at Corinth dealing with this very issue of unity. And what's interesting is that Paul deals with the issue of unity, but he exhorts them at the same time to evaluate their own hearts. To evaluate their spirit of unity in light of participating in communion. Listen to what he writes. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Starting in verse 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, listen now, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so as we participate in communion, let me encourage you to use this time to reflect on the example of Jesus Christ that we have before us, but to also evaluate the spirit of unity in your own heart toward another brother or sister in Jesus Christ. And perhaps the Holy Spirit will convict and challenge, you know what, I'm at odds with somebody. There is not a spirit of unity towards this person or that person. I need to go seek them out. I need to get laid out on the table. I need to take the journey. I need to talk to that person. I need to own up my part in it and seek forgiveness and reconciliation. That's what Paul's getting at here. Make things right before we participate. Make things right before God. If there's unconfessed sin in your own heart, to use this time to come before God and to freely own it and acknowledge it and confess it in repentance and then receive his cleansing forgiveness so that you are now ready to receive the Lord's Supper in a manner that is worthy of our Lord and Savior. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, And as we take a few minutes here to do just that, let me encourage you to do so. Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace and hope we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we recognize this comes from you through the work of Jesus Christ. Bring it about in our lives. And may we strive to keep it by always welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us. To your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Listen, if you are here this morning and you have confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord by trusting Him for your salvation and identifying with Him in baptism and committing to His body and membership of a, of a local church, man, then we invite you, we encourage you to participate in communion. If you're here and you're not yet a Christ follower, that is, you have yet to confess jesus christ as your savior and lord then i invite you to watch what the church does 
And when you watch, when you see the bread and the juice, I pray you will see a picture of God's love for you as the church eats and drinks of these symbols of grace as they represent the body and blood of Jesus Christ as he died the sacrificial death for our sins. As the music begins to play, let me encourage you to take time to give thanks, take time to pray before God, to do business before God if you need to, and then at your convenience as the Lord leads you to come and participate in the Lord's Supper. You may take the bread and the cup back to your seat to eat and drink as the music begins to play.